Welcome to CIO Leadership Live UK. I'm Lee Rennick, Executive Director of CIO Communities, and I'm very excited to welcome Graham Bryce, Chief Technology Officer at Hollybob. Graham, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your current role? Yeah, so as you say, I'm the Chief Technology Officer. I've been here for over four years since the company was founded. Uh, I came in with uh, a, somebody that I've worked with before, so we came in as a bit of a double act, and, and uh, Stuart, who came with me, is still here. Um, responsible for everything in terms of tech for Hollybob, and Hollybob is in the tours and experiences uh, business, acting uh, as an aggregator to some extent, but but also uh, bringing consumers and products together in a way that's really never been imagined before. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I really appreciate you joining us here today, Graham. We've created this series to support technology leaders in their tech and leadership journey. So the first question I ask, and I ask this of everyone, could you please tell us a little bit about your own career path and provide some insights or tips on that road path? Are there any lessons learned that you could share? Yeah, I mean, lessons are always unique to everybody, so I don't know how many people can take them up. But I mean, my my road in is somewhat unconventional, though. If I tell you how it began, it probably doesn't sound that, but then it kind of deviates. So my mother was a statistician working for a part of the UK government, which, a you know, going back that far, my mum's in her 80s now, was unusual for women to be yeah. in senior roles and even more so for them to be in roles using computers. But nevertheless, she was using computers. The government in the UK had recognized that they wanted to get kids to get interested in IT. So we're going back a long, long way, of course. And so at age 14, while still a kid at school, I was signed up. I can't remember whether willingly or otherwise um, to a course over the summer holidays run by the UK government, um, learning Fortran, learning IT, um, working with punch cards and ticker tape because it predates um, computers having visual display units or screens as we call them now. So it goes back a long way and that's a great founding in a way. But what really happened after that is at 18, I switched to become a sound engineer. Um, I got involved in stage management, um, a lot of stuff around observation and communication again before kind of, you know, walkie talkies were really high quality before mobile phones really existed. Um, I moved and became the, um, the one of the production managers for Mayfest in Glasgow when Glasgow won the European uh, City of Culture um, and eventually was invited to become the assistant technical director to the Edinburgh International Festival, which is one of the biggest arts festivals in the world. An amazing role uh, at a time when the Iron Curtain still existed and one of our primary forms of communication was telex. We did have a fax machine, but I think we had the first one, so nobody else had one. Um, and then when I um, finished in that role, um, we were in the process of having children. The only other roles I could find at the time were away from the UK. That wasn't really compatible with life. Somebody said to me, oh, you know something about computers? And I did. I kept it as a hobby. Um, they said, we need to train a bunch of secretaries in a estate agency, global, uh, sorry, a national estate agency firm to move from typewriters to what was WordPerfect 5.1 at the time. Um, so I said, yeah, I could do that. And that six weeks turned into the career that I'm in today. Um, 2013, I founded a company called Factonomy. Uh, we built uh, some early low-code, no-code type software, which we sold into the larger investment banks in the world, including JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Um, interestingly, that software was significantly involved in business continuity and disaster recovery, but with specific modules to do with pandemic planning, which at the time there was a certain sense of 
well, a pandemic's never going to happen, but we should plan for it anyway. And clearly the world has uh, has experienced what it has in the last few years. Um, and then many roles as CTOs moving forward from that in, in various different companies, large and small, um, and doing a lot of um, kind of free non-exec directory uh, director work for founders, trying to save them from themselves and from some IT firms and from firms selling them what the firm already has rather than what the founders are looking for. And so I met Holly Bob founders in at a Lloyds Bank in like meetup event. Um, and they twisted my arm. In fact, I did some free work for them to start off with. And uh, then they twisted my arm and said, can you bring your uh, your efforts to where your words are and see if you can prove us prove it right? And that's where I am. Well, that's a fantastic journey. And we didn't have this question planned, but can I ask you a little just about, because it seems to me like now when people are learning about um, technology, we've got STEAM rather than STEM, the arts is in there. And obviously you worked in an arts space. So, you know, I just want to ask, did that, does that have an impact, do you think, on how you look at things from a technology perspective? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely does. I think one of the key things that you learn in the arts and, and once, I mean, I mean, I, I worked at all ends of the arts. So to some extent, you know, rock and roll through opera, through ballet and all the rest of it. But And some people think rock and roll is an amateur kind of game, but it's absolutely not. But the biggest thing about all of those things is, A, you have to deliver perfection because at the end of the day, the audience will notice a lamp that squint or a smudge on the stage or a bang when somebody drops a, a broom or something backstage. So there's a massive uh, effort on everyone to make the show perfect. And the other thing is the show is going up at 7.30 or 8 or whenever it is. You can't kind of go, I'm sorry, we're not quite ready yet. Do you mind coming back in a couple of hours? So from that, to compare that to the early days of IT, when everything was kind of I would say less professional um, than it is today. Um, it was very much that thing about we do need to focus on what the business needs. It needs to be great. The, you know, you can't let, um, what's the, the phrase? You can't let um, the perfect get in the way of progress, but you do need to be pretty close to bang on all the time. Um, and it also leads to all the preparation stuff that's still relevant to IT. So if you're going to pack up three Arctic lorries of, of equipment, and send it halfway across Europe to go and do a gig. If you've forgotten to pack something, it's a bit late to come home. It's the same in IT. You need to think about everything at the bottom first. You need to think about your, your security, your permissioning, your multi-tenancy and all of that before you build the pretty bit at the front. Because if you build the pretty bit at the front as a proof of concept, it's very hard to go back and rewrite the architecture. So I think that planning is, is, is one of the key things I got out of it. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. And this really works well into our next question, which is about leadership in technology. So because as you say, when the show goes on, the show must go on, it has to go on the stage. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of teams to build that. So when we last spoke, you talked about elite team development in building your software engineering teams. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the ways you look to build elite teams that deliver value for the Holly Bob team, customers, and also the stakeholders overall? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, I've been about it a number of different ways, I guess, over the years, and I've, I've worked in, in large and small firms. But at Hollybob, we decided early on that we were only going to recruit, in, in the first few years, we were only going to recruit very experienced senior developers. The argument being that whilst you're paying them a lot more money, and let's face it, developers are a very expensive and rare resource, 
um, you're paying them a lot more money. They are probably three or four times more efficient at getting stuff done than juniors. Now, that doesn't scale over the long term, mostly because there aren't enough senior developers to actually continue that thread forever. But our view has been in all the way through the development of our stack and, and the recruiting that we've done, that we're looking to retain people over the long term. I would say there's nobody in my team that wouldn't say hand on heart that they expect to be here in, sorry, that everybody on my team expects to be here in five years time and more. Right. So what we're now planning is that come Q1 of next year, as we upscale again, we will see all of the team or most of the team become team leaders. And then we are going to look at outsourcing some of that junior resource. But we've already got so much knowledge shared across the team on what is a very complex enterprise stack that I think that has paid dividends so far. Um, and we've had great innovation from those people as well. The one thing you do have to do to support them is to not have them doing mundane tasks because senior developers with big brains and big egos don't want to do mundane tasks. So one of our strategies from the start has to have a very highly automated DevOps stack. Um, we do continuous deployments. Uh, we deploy five, six, to 10 times a day, which is unusual. Um, and the all of that is automated. So developer finishes the code, the reviews get done, the tests all execute, the code will deploy to production. So with all of that in place, developers are spending all of their time either thinking about stories and writing some of the documentation or um, actually developing. Wow. So really, it's important for this organization and for you as a leader to build these elite teams that, you know, really are able to perform and feel that they have this value. So this really segues well into the next question, question which we wanted to talk around talent, the future of work or the current future of work and remote working. So we know a lot of companies, tech companies are bringing their teams back into the office environment. And I spoke to one C CIO who worked for a city. So this was mandated. She had 400 team members coming back and she said, you know, I'm going to lose some of those team members just because they don't want to come into the office. They want to be able to keep remote working. So can you talk a little bit about that? We had we had a discussion around the way you're doing your team building and your remote teams and how you're really building collaboration and connection. Are there some leadership tips you could provide or like to share in this area? Yeah, I, I think it's difficult for different organizations. So when you've got an organization that size, you're talking about a sort of city level organization, you've got junior developers, business analysts, you've got designers, you've got senior developers and all the rest of it. The senior developers have got the clout to say, look, I'm going to leave because I can work from home and it's more convenient and it works for me. The problem is then twofold. The junior developers can't necessarily work from home because it's very difficult not to monitor them in terms of keeping eyes on them, but to mentor them in terms of walking the floor, as I've done before. And I think some other people have done in the past as well. You walk the floor, you find out who's looking bored or confused or lost or whatever, and you help them, you tap them on the shoulder, you move them forward. The problem, of course, now is if all the senior developers continue to work at home and all the junior developers are forced back into the office, who's even mentoring the junior developers? So the situation is even worse. I think Hollybob finds itself in that lucky position that we have senior developers. They've always worked from home. They were recruited on that basis. Um, but the other thing, I think there are then challenges, even with the, the kind of team that I've got. Um, of how do you keep the social interaction going? So we do a lot at Hollybob to keep it social. So for instance, the, the, the entire dev team has a, what we still kind of call a stand-up, but it isn't. 
Um, we have a stand-up at 10.30 European time or, or UK time every day. It's known that it's a social. It's actually about, we do talk about business, we do talk about code, we do talk about what's going on, but actually it's really about checking that everyone's still alive, that everybody's still smiling. And that is not where we deal with story points or prioritization or anything else. There are then separate teams break out after that and they go and do the sort of more formal stand up in smaller groups and that works really well. But on top of that, we run what has been very successful for us, which is the uh, what we call the, 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 the coffee dates. Um, and we run that regularly. It's company-wide, and it's pretty much a mandated meeting. You have to have a really good excuse to not be there. And the way that works is the whole company joins the call. So it's almost like an all-teams. Everybody joins the call within, I don't know, a minute of the call time. So you've got everybody there. And then we randomly split everybody into groups of, of four, three or four, depending. As the company's grown, it's become uh, teams of four. And you can end up with the CEO. You can end up talking to me. You can end up talking to the most junior person in the company, somebody who started yesterday or somebody who's been here for four years. And on that call, we mandate you are not allowed to talk about work. So what happens is you end up talking about politics or child rearing or, or you know, gardening or the weather. And that's proven to be really successful. When we first launched it, we weren't sure. But actually, we launched it probably three years ago when the company was a lot smaller. It has absolutely stood the test of time. It's an, you know, it's regular, you know, many calls throughout the month. And it just keeps people connected. But it solves that whole, how does anybody get to talk to anybody? And I think, again, it's better than the water cooler or people wandering around in an office building. Because you might wander around in an office building, but if you're the latest junior, you're not going to grab the CEO and talk about some social event or whatever. Whereas in this, there's only four of you in the room. Someone has to speak. So it, it works really well. That is really, really fantastic. I love that idea of building that type of culture into your, as I say, culture is tacit and it's like, People will feel that energy come to it, be able to talk and chat. We, um, I run a group with that, within Foundry with our ERG. Uh, it's called I Stand With uh, With Her. It's our women's initiative. And obviously, you know, we find the same thing happens. People come together and it gives them an opportunity at every, any level to speak about anything, what's happening in their lives, how they're feeling about a work initiative, how they're, you know, yeah, like you said, what's happening in their garden. So I just think that's really fantastic. You're you're pulling that together um, in the organization. I thank you for sharing that. So I want to pop on to the next question, which is about innovation. And, um, you know, obviously, in the last since November of last year, Gen AI and large language models are really prevalent in discussions about innovation. Um, so I'd love for you to share your views on Gen AI and LLMs and perhaps some of the ways you're looking to deploy or, or what you're seeing in market. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And it, it, I mean, it is key in our minds as it is in many places. But I think the first thing to, to do is to try and draw a difference between the sort of open AI, chat GPT, large language models, which is where all the hype has been recently, and then other aspects of, a, of, of AI. So... In a way, when you're trying to deal with AI, when you're trying to get emergent um, outcomes from training models and from training systems, you pretty much need a lot of data. And then you need to not be prescriptive in terms of what you're trying to make it do, because that's the old way. So for instance, marketing in the old way, you segmented things. If you're using AI, you're kind of getting the AI to achieve the same outcome, 
but you can't get it to explain why it did it. Large language models are different because they've already been trained with half the internet. Indeed, certain lawyers are now suing certain other companies for having trolled the internet in the first place. So it's, it's all going to get quite interesting. Um, but it's already got massive amounts of data. So that's where the hype cycle has gone. It's really around OpenAI and then BARD and then all, all the other yeah. tools that, that everyone else has brought out. But that isn't the really difficult stuff in terms of the data science and the AI modeling. Um, and of course, we're seeing VCs jump on that bandwagon as well because they were previously on the crypto bandwagon. And obviously that didn't, you know, well, that's that's run its course. It's not in the hype cycle anymore. Some of that technology is still very interesting. Um, but but yeah, I think the thing about AI is it takes it takes a lot of talent to actually figure out how would we apply AI to this particular problem. And for us, that particular problem in many ways is about marrying up what we know and what we can learn about the consumer in in both by asking them uh, and and in other ways and how we can get the right stuff to them. We don't want to sell them the wrong stuff. We want to sell them the right stuff. We want to delight them. Back to the show business thing. We want them to leave and tell all their friends, this was amazing. And so it's all about delighting the customer. And we're trying to apply AI to do that. Um, but that is about training new models. So yeah, I think it is it is in a hype cycle. It is a new field. It is real. It is scary in some way. And certainly there are all sorts of challenges legally and otherwise in terms of things like bias. Where did the AI get its data from? What did it learn? And if you continually retrain AI that has got some kind of bias in it, I think there's a reasonable expectation that the bias is going to get worse because it's almost teaching itself. It's almost a self-professing prophecy. So I, I, I think it's worrying in some ways, but, but it will be it's significant in others. As you said, you're looking at ways to delight your customer. So if you utilize it with your own data, you make sure the biases are removed from that. You know, there's an opportunity, I think, to really create some great stakeholder and customer value. Yeah. See, one of the things we're doing is as AI is generating new models and new data and doing new things, one of the things we're doing is having humans look at what it's doing, not all of it, but some of it, in order to try and spot the things that don't make sense and then correct both correct it and correct the data so that there's a there's this kind of partnership going on between AI introducing efficiency, but humans actually being more intelligent than artificial intelligence. Love that. I, I that's really great. I thank you for sharing that. So um going over to our last question, I really wanted to shift and discuss the role of the senior technology leader. So one CI I spoke with recently said that understanding both technology and business uh, right across the board. And she, in fact, said, if you don't have a business background, go get an MBA if you want to be a technology leader. So that was a really interesting discussion. But when we spoke last week, you put it in a different way, and I really loved it, that the senior technology leader leads the orchestration of technology in the business. So that idea of orchestration was really impactful to me. So can you talk about little bit about this as it relates to long-term business strategy and planning, you know, communication of tech at the management level and how it ties into, again, overall business and stakeholder value. I mean, I mean, there's so many issues in there, honestly. I mean, some of it is really difficult. You definitely do have to be able to speak both languages. I've seen and been in organizations where tech just tells the business that it's wrong, sucks air through its teeth, shakes its head and go, no, you can't do that. 
Um, and equally where there's just that that communication isn't happening. And so the business doesn't understand why it's difficult for tech and tech doesn't understand why the business wants what it wants. Or, or often actually what you find is tech doesn't understand why the business doesn't understand it. And I do find myself from time to time saying, if the business doesn't understand it, it's because we haven't explained it well enough, not because the business is ignorant, it's because we haven't explained it well enough. And I would say we try to do the same with the business. It's like, we don't understand it because you understand the language that you're using. So taxonomy is one of the things that we do focus on. Um, there's a couple of things around taxonomy, but trying to, to fix words and say, this word in this company means this. It doesn't mean something else. So for instance, we'll always talk about a consumer. We'll never talk about a customer because for us, customer is a bit vague. Is that customer the partner or is it the partner's partner or is it the consumer that's downstream of that? But we always know the consumer is the person that, that's at the end booking, booking something. And we run that taxonomy through everything that we do in terms of we, we spend a lot of time deciding what to call something. But then we write it down, we log it, we, we socialize it, we make sure everybody knows that helps. Um, and in terms of trying to understand the business requirements, we do collaborative sessions a lot. So we'll get um, really what we call a business problem document. We'll then sit down and go like, try and figure out whether we understand it, then we'll go back to them and go, this is what our understanding is. And we'll do that verbally on a, on a Teams call. And then we'll refine that understanding. Then we'll come up with what we think the solution might be. We'll try and tell the business not to tell us what the solution is, because often we can be better than that. Um, but we'll collaborate through that process and then we'll estimate the effort. But then, of course, you have to look at the prioritizations as well. It's like we can estimate the effort, you know, like, you know, 40 man days of work, we have to get it done in 20. So we either need to put two or three people on it, or we need to do some kind of compromise. So there is a degree of trying to make that compromise, what's a minimum viable product, not what's a hack, because those hacks will always come back and bite us as well. And then it's, you know, it, it is really difficult. The orchestration thing that you mentioned, I do like to think about orchestrating in that it's, it, it's a subtle art rather than using tools like Jira. I, I, I actually, we do use tools like Jira and everything else, but they in themselves can disguise the long form discussions. They can disguise the real problem and all the rest of it. And they, they sort of boil everything down to tickets and story points. Quite often they do that too soon. And then you do get that disconnect. So I think long form documents, meetings where you tell someone what you're gonna tell them, you tell them it, and then you tell them that you told them it, and then you ask them to play it back to you to make sure that they got it. Um, that works both ways. It does take time, but it does result in a lot better outcomes, in my opinion. Yeah, and you made an excellent point when we spoke last week about Jira and ticketing. And, you, you know, you said to me, well, this is like all the things that we're fixing, but we haven't told the story about what we've done. And so I really love that too. That was really impactful for me. Yeah, I think I said to you actually that, that my description of ticketing systems is usually they are a very long list of things you're not doing. And, and then there are processes in Agile to groom the backlog and to get rid of parts of it and all the rest of it. And it's like, well, why is it there? Yeah, yeah. Why did you put it in if you weren't actually doing it? So we too try and remain very current um in terms of what we're actually doing what we're actually achieving but then i mean I, I must admit one of the challenges as well is you can get so bogged down in the detail of what you're doing this month and next month that you can forget where are you trying to get to by 2025 where are you trying to get to beyond that so again we do away days to solve that problem um with with kind of pre-read materials um and then we do away days with with various different parties to contribute 
where only we're looking at the long term and the strategy and then try and come back to the business and then distill that back down. So you do have to take time out of the day to day, like serious amounts of time out, like multiple days to go and do that kind of thinking. Fantastic way to end this interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Graham. I really appreciate it. It was so insightful. And if you're interested in learning more about this interview um, or others, don't hesitate to visit us at cio.com front slash UK. Thanks again, Graham. No worries. Thank you.